Hi, and welcome to the Leadership Tales podcast. I'm Colin Hunter, and I'm your host. We just concluded our fifth season of the podcast, and today I'd like to take a moment to highlight some of my favorite moments from Series 5. We've found some of the best moments with Chris Wilson, Rich Deveni, Adam Billing, Joshua Seiden, Ken Mossman, and a unique combination of Tom Caden and Michael Gingrich of Someone to Tell It To. They'll share the unique perspectives on leadership and tying back into some of the personal stories from their careers, as well as sharing actionable insights and tips that we can use for our careers. So let's dive in. So one of the most fascinating, inspiring stories from me that we featured on the Leadership Tales podcast was that of Chris Wilson, who was sentenced to life in prison. While he was incarcerated, Chris developed a master plan to get his life back on track, implementing this plan and was eventually released. Great story. My mom and I was attacked by this police officer who she stopped seeing, uh, and he sexually assaulted my mom. He beat us up uh, and lost his job because of it. But when he got out of jail, he started stalking our family. And so I started carrying a gun. Hmm. And this was around the time that my brother and cousin were shot in front of the house. Uh, my brother survived, but my cousin passed away. Hmm. And then they came after me next. And I ended up taking a person's life. I was 17 years old. I was charged as an adult and sentenced to natural life in prison. And so when I first went to prison, I fell into a deep depression for my first two years. I couldn't believe that they would throw my life away. I was 118 pounds, didn't even have a mustache on my face. And they had told me that I would grow old and die in prison. And it was around this time that I had met someone who also had a life sentence. Uh, and he was working really hard on teaching himself computer programming. He had this plan and this belief uh that if he worked really hard, that he can make it home one day and be successful. And I thought he was crazy at first. I, I, I laughed at him, I remember. Hmm. He says, you know, we have everything taken away from us, but no one can take away the knowledge that we put in our minds. And he says, this is how I'll be free one day and I'll pay it forward. And that really clicked with me. And I went back to my cell and I wrote up uh, a two-page uh, bucket list, or, or I call it my master plan, of all the things I wanted to do with my life, how I wanted to get a college degree. I wanted to learn Spanish. I wanted to get a high school diploma. I wanted to be a successful entrepreneur. I wanted to buy all my dream cars, a black Corvette convertible, a black Ferrari. Now and you're I talking. Write a book one day. Yeah, so <laughs> I sent it to my judge and my grandmother and they became my accountability partners. And so I worked really hard for about a decade in prison and got my high school diploma, college degree, taught myself Spanish, Italian, went on to learn Mandarin and became a mentor helping other people. And finally, I got a second chance to get uh, to live my life. And the judge told me that I had to finish everything on the plan that I had sent her. And so I've been home now for 10 years. I, I ended up serving 16 and a half years in prison. I've been home now for 10, over 10. Um, I've started several companies. I've became an artist. I've published my book, The Master Plan, which I'm very proud of. It's my, my, my life's work. Uh, and I'm paying it forward by mentoring and helping people through my uh, foundation, hmm. by helping people change their mindset. I believe all of us have a uh, potential. Some people's uh, potential is just untapped and they can't find that switch. And so we help people find that switch. And when I'm not doing that, I'm making art and I'm traveling all around the world. Whoa. 
We could just end it there, drop the mic and go, what, what a story. Secondly, I'd love the opportunity to meet people who have a military background because they always have fascinating insights on leadership. And Rich Devaney is no exception. Rich is a former U.S. Navy SEAL who was involved heavily in the SEAL selection process. And what he's done is determine the key attributes that make somebody a high performer. In this clip, Rich is going to share the difference between skills and attributes. It's an important distinction for our work and for yours. We often uh, look at performance um, just at the surface level, and we look at what I would define as skills, very visible things. So skills, just to kind of put it into, into real simple terms, skills, are uh, they're not inherent to our nature. In other words, we, none of us are born with the ability to ride a bike or throw a ball or, or drive a car, right? We're taught to do those things. We learn how to do those Skills direct our behavior in known and specific environments. So here's how and when to throw a ball or ride a bike or drive a car. And then skills, because they're very visible, they're very easy to assess and measure. In other words, you can see how well anybody does any one of those things. And you can put scores around them and, and stats around them. Um, but this is why we get seduced by skills when we're picking teams a lot of times, because you can put skills on a resume and you can, you, can, uh, you can see the stats, you can see the numbers on a skills. The problem with skills is they don't tell us how we're going to show up in stress, challenge, and uncertainty, because in an unknown environment, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to apply a known skill. This is when we lean on our attributes. Attributes, on the other hand, are innate, all right? All of us are born with levels of patience, adaptability, resilience, uh, situation awareness. Now, we can certainly develop these things over time and experience, but you can see levels of this stuff in very small children, which means there's a nature-nurture element to attributes. Attributes don't direct our behavior. They inform our behavior. They tell us how we're going to show up to an environment. So in other words, my son's levels of resilience and perseverance informed the way he showed up when he was learning the skill of riding a bike and he was falling off a dozen times doing so, right? Uh, and then finally, because they're hidden in the background, they're very difficult to assess and measure and test. It's hard to see them, hard to measure them. You, you can see them the most visibly and viscerally during times of stress, challenge, and uncertainty. Uh, but they often get overlooked in, in, in normal interview processes or, or hiring processes because there's not a lot of stress and challenge involved. And, and people are just kind of seduced by these and drawn to the, the, big, the big red light that, that is skills. But the, if, we're, if we're discounting attributes and performance, we're discounting a huge, huge portion of the performance picture, and most definitely we're discounting the, the the portion of performance that matters most when you want a team to operate in uncertain, challenging, and stressful situations. It resonates with me because part of our assessment for our uh, team is we do a 10-minute exercise where it's a role play, but it's a real scenario where they're put under pressure by a client and they have to respond. And what we're testing is not that they get a successful outcome, but it's about how they stay resilient and stay yes. connected in the moment. And and that's what the SEALs would have done to test yeah. um, what they were doing. So, well, so how, in interesting, yeah. military training holistically um, across the board, obviously the SEALs take it to the extreme level, as do the SBS, right? But uh, holistically, it's about throwing people into very challenging environments. In other words, I, I spent, you know, SEAL training, for example, it's called BUDS, Basic Underwater Demolition Slash SEAL Training. It's out in, in San Diego, California. It's six months long. It's one of the most, it's known as one of the most arduous programs on the planet. You, it's about a, a 90% attrition rate. So only about 10% of the folks who start finish it, right? You spend in SEAL training. I remember when I was doing this work, I, I, I recalled, uh, uh, so you spend hundreds of hours in SEAL training, running around with big, heavy boats on your head, exercising with 300-pound telephone poles and running around with those things, doing thousands of push-ups, freezing in their surf zone. 
And as I thought about it when I was doing this work initially, I, I had already been, I already done hundreds of combat missions in Iraq and Afghanistan. I had done thousands of training evolutions. Never on one of them did I ever carry a heavy boat on my head or a, tel- a 300 pound telephone pole, right? So, so what they were doing in those training, in that training was not training us in the skills to be Navy SEALs. They were putting us into situations, into environments into experiences to tease out these attributes because that's what they were looking for. And that's why these, uh, that's why the military holistically, ha- this is kind of an unconscious genius about military boot camp or, or the, the training like that. They're, they're, they're looking for attributes first and then they start training. Okay. Now we're going to show you how to, how to manage and shoot your gun, right? That's a skill, <laughs> but they have to have the attributes first. And then we have Adam Billing. I've worked with Adam for years and implemented design thinking at Potential Squared. Adam is the founder and CEO of Treehouse Innovation, a consultancy that specializes in design thinking and building cultures of innovation and experimentation. So listen as Adam shares the principles behind design thinking and why you might find it beneficial. If you look at design thinking, what is it really besides understand what the people you are designing for or you know related to the problem that you're trying to solve understand what they care about before you start coming up with your ideas of what you think is a wonderful you know solution for them it's about involving diverse perspectives and coming up with lots of ideas before you settle on one quickly and then it's about creating rough sketches and prototypes so you can test your assumptions before just building you know that thing that you're sure is going to be wonderful those principles, those those fundamentals, never go away. I mean, those those things exist um, because I think just in in the world of um, well, just, just just being human, I think a lot of our natural tendencies uh, steer us down a kind of a, a, an unhelpful path of you know leading with our own ideas or not involving lots of people, just taking our own ideas and run with it. And, and, and you know, as soon as we've got a great idea, we just start building and trying to convince the world it's great. Design thinking helps us overcome those very, I think, eternal um, uh, challenges that we as people on earth face. So I don't, I don't think it's going anywhere and I don't think it's really changed much. And I love that because there are guiding principles in a lot of ways, aren't they? I mean, we talk about new practices that become habitual, that are ingrained. You know, for example, the how might we statement for me was transformational to start a strategy session with how might we rather than here's the problem we've got to solve. Yeah. Um, in terms of what we're doing. So the how might we is instrumental. So when we think about guiding principles, the other thing that I love about what you're saying there is if you just take the putting the user at the center of what you're looking at, the human, yeah. that's where everybody's now saying, oh, empathy, empathy is the new big thing in leadership. And like, no, it's not the new big thing. It should have been there for ages. Yeah. There's, there's always got to be new books, yeah. right? There's always got to be new HBR. So you're blaming the authors then, basically, I'm yeah, as, a, as one. <laughs> I'm looking right at it. Yeah, it's... No, I think I think yeah. it's it's there are absolute timeless yeah. um, truths that are that are at work here about how people work better together and get to solutions that matter for the people they're designing for. That you can call it what you want, paint it any color you want, but a lot of those things are embodied in human centered design. Hmm. 
And I love the, I'd love to explore a bit of the work you do because, you know, you and I having a conversation the other day about experimenting and, you know, some of the, some of the constructs in design thinking are quite difficult to get your head around. You know, one observing without judgment for me is always as a judgmental person with lots of opinions, I really struggle with that. But I think that the key thing for me is this concept of experiments and the experimental mindset. And you're working with Gene in terms of the, the diagnostic. I'd love to just dig into that because there's, there's a power in that and, and the thinking, the insights you've got from doing that. Do you want to explain a bit about what the work is? Yeah. Sure, sure. No, happy to. Um, I mean, so I think experimentation, again, kind of going back to that principle is almost, you know, looking at design thinking as a way of protecting ourselves from our own worst, uh, you know, reflexes. Um, experimentation, I think, is the toughest thing to, to, to embed in a lot of ways, because yeah. what do we mean by that, first mm -hmm. of all? Um, it's the idea is, is when you have a, you know, a new idea or a new solution that you're super excited about, you know, you had that eureka moment in the shower or whatever, it's changing your natural reflex, well, at least for many of us, that natural reflex is, okay, I'm going to start building it up and I'm going to go around and start showing some people and, and, and basically convince them what a great idea it is. And if I really want to convince them, I, I really need to build this thing out. Maybe I need to have a spreadsheet that's going to show how much money it makes or a PowerPoint where the formatting's perfect, you know, that, that, that shows what the sales pitch will look like. I'm going to, you know, really build it out as opposed to doing that. It's listing out very systematically, immediately, what those key assumptions you're making around the user, the ultimate customer, whoever it is for this idea, what they'll be able to do and willing to do or interested in doing, and then going out and, and testing each one of those assumptions one by one, really and doing as quickly as you can to, to kind of get that really early learning into your idea and finding out what's wrong with it. Cause every new idea is born with all kinds of inherent flaws, but finding out what those are really early. Um, so if that, if we, if we think about that's what we mean by experimentation. It was a pleasure to have Josh Seiden on the show. Josh is an expert in the UX UI space, as well as a speaker and author of four books. And his work on outcomes was critical to, to my thinking when I first heard it and first read that book. So what you'll get from today's clip is where Josh has a perspective on purpose as the driving force behind innovation and how it needs to serve the consumer, not the creator. So listen to how he approaches it in this next clip. In 2011, I, 2010, 2011, I discovered the work of Eric Ries. Eric uh, wrote an important book, I think, called The Lean Startup. And uh, yeah, it's a great book. And Eric says sort of the key question in, in technology is not, can you build it? Because engineers can build amazing things. The question is, should you build it? Does anybody want it? And sort of hidden in that question is, you know, is the software valuable? Does it create the outcome that we think we're going to generate, right? You shouldn't build software that just runs, right? We need to build software that, that creates value and, and creates an outcome. And sort of as I lived in that world, thinking about outcomes, we use the idea of outcomes in Lean UX in the first book. And we've used it, the, the book is in its third edition now. We've used it subsequently and we've continued to teach it. It sort of became clear that um, 
that outcomes was an important concept that was sort of poorly defined. It was sort of fuzzy. What did it mean, outcome? People talk about outcomes, but they just mean it as a synonym for results. So in sort of developing the idea, I came to understand that, that the, the user, the customer, the organization, the, the planet. So what I loved about the book, Josh, was it really challenged my thinking. As a leader, I'm focused on outputs. That's what I can control. And the outcomes, it's more nebulous. It's more, it's, it's almost linking that to the how might we's. So it's, it's great for the mind that goes like that. But in terms of the writing them, it is, is very tricky to do. Tell us a bit about the process to get that. Cause that is one of the things in the book you say it's difficult, isn't it? Yeah, it is difficult. It's difficult because we're shifting from, you know, kind of concrete instructions, like I'm going to write a report or I'm going to make a product. We're shifting from that concrete uh, framing to a much more abstract way of thinking about things. But you can actually use it at two levels. You can use it at a high level leadership level, and you can use it at a kind of a more detailed level. At a high level leadership uh, kind of level question, you can just ask, well, okay. Uh, in fact, I had a, a, a CEO of a, a bank uh, I was talking to recently. He said, look, I don't get into the details. When, when people come to me and they want to spend money, I say, okay, fine. What outcome is this, um, is this initiative going to create? What will people be doing differently if we spend that money? And so it can be just, you can use it as a thinking experiment, right? At a very high level. Um, he said, he said, look, I'm the CEO. I don't get into the details. <laughs> yeah. I love, but I love that framing because it's going back to leading with questions yeah. leading into there. The more detailed version of it is, um, it, it starts with what we call the user journey, right? So what are people doing today? What are they trying to do? Right. And how can we help them do the things that they're trying to do in a way that creates value for them and for us, right? So what's the user journey? And, and you can start just by telling a story. What are they doing today from start to finish, right? And then you may, you may understand as you tell that story, there may be some things that are very obviously valuable, right? Well, the user comes to our website, they sign up for our um, email newsletter. Great. We know that's valuable, right? There may be other things that they're doing on their journey that are not obviously valuable and, and it's, we have to try to understand it, right? Um, and so that's part of, that's the hard work of, of product discovery and the hard work that product teams need to do. And then there's that, that second, once we've kind of understood that journey, we can ask the question, well, how do we get them to do this thing more, right? Um, you see on the, <laughs> on the web, everywhere you go, the, f the first thing you see when you hit a, a website for the first time is sign up for our newsletter. I was like, okay, I, I understand what you're trying to do, but that's not really valuable for me in the first 10 seconds. I'm not going to sign up for your newsletter. Right. And so we've got kind of two questions to deal with, like what's valuable for us What's there's more than two questions. What's valuable for us? What's valuable for them? What's the intersection of those value points? And then how do we get people to 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 do that? Right. And so, yeah, what's valuable for you? Signing up. What's valuable for me? Not signing up. So not actually. so much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was immediately captured by the work 
of Ken Mossman and what he does in the Integrated Adult Male course, where he helps men rediscover joy and find the best versions of themselves. His work has already had a big impact on me, and I can't wait to dive in deeper and get involved in the course. So in this clip, Kent addresses the young men struggling with their identity, factoring in the root causes, and also offering some solutions. So if you're struggling with this, or if you're a parent or an educator, I think you'll find Ken's insights very helpful. In terms of the crisis with um, that's going on with with where younger men, you know, boys and men, and and even men uh, who look like you and I, you know, I have a little more gray than you, but uh, still, you know, middle aged men, etc. From a political standpoint, the political right, you know, the conservatives want to drag us back to the, you know, what was so much better in the fifties as an example, and the political left wants to deny that there's uh, a problem. And of course, neither of those is a, is a, is, is, is useful. Neither of those points of view or holding it that way is uh, ways of holding it are useful. And so one of the things that he's pointing to, and I'm still relatively early in the book is we need to find a way to not have it be either or to not get out of the way, but to move forward together. And part of that lives in the arena of, of education. You know, part of that lives in the recognition that yes, boys mature more slowly than, than girls do. And our, uh, our institutions, our educational institutions aren't set up to take any of that into account. Those of us in Western culture, you know, from the time we're able to, to live in the world of language, uh, have these messages thrown at us. And, and oftentimes they're messages, they're messages about, you know, what it is to be a man, you know, what, it, what, what's, what's manhood, what's masculine, what's manly, etc. Yet, it's pretty darn rare that we receive messages about what it is to be a conscious whole adult. And, and what we see, you know, in the world, uh, out in the world, in the media, in the world of leadership all over the place is we see uh, an awful lot of men, the culture anyway, is kind of locked into a, a state of adolescence. But I think particularly men get locked into this uh, endless feedback loop, endless adolescent feedback loop that includes um, entitlement, a certain kind of irresponsibility. Uh, you know, there's a, there's there's a lot to it. I could talk about it for days. I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go down that path. But the program starts with that that premise that we you know we hear an awful lot about what it is to be a man, what it means. You know, in air quotes, what it means to be a man, what masculinity is, what manhood is, but not a great deal about about uh, responsible adulthood. And what we do in the program is we, we re-familiarize ourselves with different aspects of self, you know, multi our, our multi-dimensionality. So let's find, that, let's find that inner child and get to know him. Get to know him in real time, by the way. So we're not, you know, we're not taking a, a backward glance, but getting to know that inner child here, now, today. These bits and pieces that are parts of us and always will be parts of us, you know, as long as we're willing to be aware of them, 
our inner adolescent, our inner young adult, looking at our inner feminine, our inner masculine, and the different aspects of the ego, really taking each of these pieces, looking at the messages that they got and the messages that they continue to carry unconsciously. So we can start to unwrap those and free ourselves from those messages and and become aware. You know that uh, that's the biggest thing is become aware of. Oh wow, I didn't. I, this one, this one's got me by the ankle, and or, or or somewhere higher up. You know, <laughs> yeah. yep. I'm not even I'm not even aware of it. So when it comes to conflict, when it comes to argument, I can show up as I can show up as an adult in the equation. You know, and the chances are I'm not going to get rattled. I might, you know, that happens, everybody. That happens to everybody. These things are practices. But there's something about being able to show up in one's adult morph, if I may say that, use that language, in one's adult morph and meet other people as adults rather than in family is one of the, is, is a great place to look because oftentimes when we're with family, depending on, depending on the relationship with family, it's like, boom, right back. I, I, I was, I was, I was 45 when I stopped the car in front of in front of my folks' house, but by the time I went through the front door, I was 13 again. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, you mean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and wouldn't it be refreshing then to, you know, to be able to carry that change and you know, change the face of of that relationship to say nothing of of all the others. I love organizations that are mission-focused. And what Tom Caden and Michael Gingrich have created at Someone to Tell It To is commendable. Someone to Tell It To is a nonprofit that helps others cultivate meaningful conversations and relationships through compassionate listening, training, and education. I found their approach, one, fascinating. And secondly, I can clearly see that they have a profound impact on the people they serve. So let's listen to Tom and Michael as they share a story that demonstrates how their method helps people improve their listening skills and improve their relationships as a result. We did an exercise where we divided the, uh, the, the group of about 38 people into groups of three, mostly three, uh, where two people were supposed to listen, just like we do as in pairs, while one person talked for 10, for 10 minutes. And then uh, we... We took a break and then debriefed with the group. How did that, how was that? How did that sound? How, how did it feel? And the gr- <laughs> we had a hard time as we were looking at the group during that first 10 minutes, like who was the, who was the person, who were the people who were listening? Because everyone was just talking. They, <laughs> they were talking over one another or with one another. They weren't, there was not a, People grabbed their phones. Yeah, people were they were already bored after you know after ten in less than ten minutes, and they had pick up their phone to look at messages and whatever. And we we said, okay, now how what what that feel like? And a number of people they said, well, we didn't really listen very well. Hmm. We we wanted to fix you know one you know somebody said. I, I just couldn't help myself because whatever the other one person was saying, I just had to tell them how to fix this. This is how this, you know, it could be better. And that's one of the, the rules that we strongly, you know, do, well, do not permit, you know, when, when we say you cannot try to fix people because that's not good listening. People don't, most people don't like to be told what to do. Um, and, and so we did this exercise three, three times. And with each successive time, it got better. It got better. There was better listening. 
the, the group was quieter and they gave the space and the time for the person who was supposed to be talking that round mm-hmm. to actually talk. We say that it has to be non-judgmental, the listening, and it can't be fixing. It is truly giving someone, this person you're listening to, the space to say what they need to say, and even to be okay with uncomfortable silences, which most people aren't, but to let those silences be there, because that actually gives the space for the person who's talking, gives them more space to say what they need to say. And at the end of that simple half hour of those groups practicing listening, we knew that something had great had happened when one woman said, while I was talking, the answer came to me hmm. what I needed to do about my problem. Hmm. I didn't need them to tell me what to do. I needed them to allow me to talk it out hmm. so that the answer that was within would come. Hmm. And she said, that's where the magic happens. And it was a direct quote from our book, which the subtitle is, that's where the magic happens. happens. And it was because that's exactly what listening does. It provides the safe space for someone to be heard and literally for them to be able to hear themselves. One of our favorite phrases or quotes comes from Walt Whitman, who once said that, be curious, not judgmental. Hmm. Love that. We actually use that tagline in the signature of all of our emails. Huh. Not curious, judgmental. Yeah. I, I, so there's a, there's a piece for me going through my head, which is everybody's potentially listening to this. Not everybody, but people listening go, well, this is, this is basic, basic stuff that we're, we're teaching here. And you and I know that that's not the, the, the case. So what's your, what's your philosophy about why people struggle to listen? What's, what's in your heads when you go into this? There are a lot of people that think that listening is just a soft skill. Like it just, we can learn it on the side, but we would say if you're, you're in a leadership role and you're not a good listener, you're not going to be in a leadership role for very long. 